Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep our history alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. Today we are in conversation with Alison Bennett, a PhD candidate at Memorial University. Her research investigates the soldiers of the British Army who contracted venereal disease while serving in the Middle East during the First World War. Her research interests include war and society, gender history, and the history of medicine. We start off with Alison explaining her current research. I'm Alison Bennett. I'm going into my fourth year of my PhD program um, uh, in history at Memorial University. And uh, my doctoral research is on British and Anzac servicemen who contracted venereal disease while serving in Macedonia and the Middle East during the First World War. Now, this seems like a very, very specific <laughs> topic. How did, you, <laughs> how did you narrow into this? Yeah, I have to give all the credit to my PhD supervisors. Initially, what happened was when I approached him saying I wanted to come back to school and do a PhD, um, we kind of brainstormed some ideas and eventually settled on a topic regarding malaria because he was doing some work on malaria um, in that region as well because malaria was quite rife during the First World War, caused a lot of uh, problems in terms of military efficiency. So I, what my application was, was uh, for my PhD program was on malaria. And then a couple months later, he called me into his office and he said, how would you feel about doing venereal disease? And I was like, sold. You don't have to convince me. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's so great. I mean, most people, a lay person or, you know, you're into history, that sort of thing typically doesn't come to mind no. unless you're researching it, right? So, yeah. so if you meet people and say, oh, yeah, I study venereal disease, do they, do they take a step mm -hmm. back? Do they, <laughs> do they? Yeah, often you kind of get one of those like, oh, wow, like, how did that come about? Or, yeah. you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I kind of enjoy seeing people's reaction <laughs> yeah. to that. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the time and place then that you're, mm -hmm. that you're looking at. Can you kind of set the stage for the era, what's happening uh, at the time period you're looking at? Gosh, it's quite a, it's quite a, a heavy topic in terms of, um, you know, these, these things that are going on with venereal disease and it being a problem for military efficiency goes back a long time. Um, VD prostitution has, really been intertwined with uh, imperial occupation, military occupation, really since it started. I mean, the history of, of syphilis itself is kind of attributed to Columbus coming over to the New World and it causing a, a, an epidemic and then that coming back to Europe and spreading again in Europe. And, you know, it's still present today. Uh, I guess in terms of the, you know, mid 19th century, uh, what we see happen uh, just a couple of years after the, the uh, Crimean War, um, it really came to the, the British public's attention that there was uh, poor health, venereal disease was a problem, there was an inquiry, um, and the military started to realize that uh, servicemen's health and well-being was very much important to the job that they were supposed to do in, in combat and military occupation, what have you. But yet, venereal disease still remained a problem and a lot of this was because it the way the empire itself uh, approached gender and sexuality so of course empire itself is a very masculine institution it's uh, very heterosexual so there were uh, certain uh, policies and expectations um, and it was the belief that you know a, a man needed uh, to have access to 
to sex. They needed access to women. So what we see happening in the, around 1864, we see what's called uh, the uh, Contagious Diseases Act. Um, and it was the first of a series um, that we see happening until its repeal in the 1880s. Um, so essentially in Britain, it um, allowed uh, servicemen to access prostitutes in garrison and port towns throughout Britain. Essentially, it created this double standard in which, you know, if a serviceman contracted venereal disease, the woman was held accountable. And she was then, um, if identified as the, you know, vector of the disease, was then uh, taken in and put into a lock hospital. So essentially, this institution would have forced uh, invasive um, examinations to determine that she did have venereal disease. So of course, you know, being before, um, you know, like super modern science is what we'd see today. Mm. um, A lot of this was really based on um, observation. So she was uh, forced to undergo this um, very cruel examination. And then obviously, if infected with VD, she would have been, been treated and treatment at that time was mostly mercury, so very toxic. And as I said, um, there was a series of um, amendments to the CDX. Um, It eventually spread to throughout Britain, so it didn't just apply to garrison and port towns. And we see similar legislation happening in uh, in the colonies as well. So we see it happening in India. We see it ha- uh, similar legislations happening in Australia and Canada. And uh, eventually, these sorts of policies kind of turned into the criminalization of prostitution. And um, I guess to go forward a little bit to the First World War. So again, venereal disease was still a problem for the British public um, at the turn of the century, in the first decade of the the 20th century. Um, And again, there was an inquiry called the uh, Royal um, Commission on Venereal Diseases, RCVD. Really, it was to determine how prevalent it was um, in society and what they could do to try and limit the spread of VD. And it didn't wrap up until 1916, so of course, about two years into the war. But it determined that um, approximately 10% of the British population was infected with gonorrhea, um, which was the more prevalent of the venereal diseases, um, the other being syphilis and canker. So um, in terms of the First World War itself, each front, each army kind of dealt with it a little bit differently. There's definitely some overlap in terms of what they did for prevention, what they did for treatment. But really we see like a a moral medicine, uh, morale approach uh, whereby, you know, the higher echelons um, of the military who were, you know, especially very Christian and um, kind of took this like moral stance, uh, were trying to convince men to um, avoid temptation, avoid vice, so prostitution and alcohol. They had organizations like the YMCA set up so that men could uh, find other more wholesome um, recreation activities when they weren't on the front line. Of course, we know what happened. It's, it's, part of life and part of very much part of history um, that is, you know, understudied. So they, uh, like I said, they also uh, took a a medical approach. So they did provide um, some forms of prophylaxis um, and they did have treatments available. Treatments were, again, toxic. We we still see mercury being used, but um, in the early uh, 20th century, we see um, a chemical called salverson, 
which was a um, chemotherapeutic drug, was discovered and, and used for syphilis, but, uh, and also an ointment called uh, calomel, which was um, like a, a, a colloidal silver. And of course, these um, medications came, again, with side effects. They were toxic chemicals. And uh, treatment took several weeks. I mean, for syphilis, it probably took about eight weeks at least. So a man would have been off the line. So again, we see that problematic in terms of uh, military efficiency. So can you tell me about the different fronts and, and maybe what soldiers were experiencing on those different fronts in terms of venereal disease? Sure. So um, I guess I'll start off by saying in 1918, we see about 5 million troops serving from the empire um, in the First World War. And the majority of those, of course, were on the Western Front. Secondary to that, Mesopotamia, I think, was the highest you know, number of troops serving there. I guess in terms of hospital admissions for VD, um, we definitely see more uh, hospital admissions for VD in France and Flanders, and even in the UK, because of course, a lot of these men went to the UK before going over to uh, the Western Front. But uh, what's I think the most interesting is that when we look at the ratio per thousand of servicemen, Egypt and Palestine has double what we see in the UK and France and Flanders. So in the UK, it was about uh, 25.13 per thousand who were uh, hospitalized for VD. And then in Flanders, it was 24.63. In Egypt and Palestine, it was 51.28. So that goes to show, you know, these these guys were, you know, um, the further away you got from home, the more <laughs> the more yeah. willing you were to take a chance, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, they were experiencing some stuff for sure. And then in Mesopotamia, it was about nineteen point one six, and Macedonia thirteen point two five. Of course, you know there there were other fronts. We see troops in Southwest Africa and in Russia later on in the war. Um, but Egypt and Palestine was the highest, and I. Not sure how that number breaks down in terms of Egypt versus Palestine, but I would suspect that Egypt was the highest out of everything. But yet, you know, they still had to provide men with access to women because we also see that morale component. You know, they're in, uh, these are men, ordinary servicemen from across Europe who had never experienced these sorts of most of them, I'll say, had never experienced these sorts of things before. Um, you know, war is chaotic. It's it's gruesome. Um, you know, we can't really imagine or relate to what they went through. So having access to prostitutes in, in one regard was to help keep morale up. Um, and a lot of servicemen, especially the younger ones who had never been sexually active before, felt that they, um, I guess, to... to to use a quote from um, a book by Bruce Cherry, they didn't want to die virgins. Um, so um, we see it, you know, that morale component as well. So where where are you finding information? Like, it, so I, maybe this is a two-part question. The first part mm-hmm. is, how open was this kind of information? How open was mm-hmm. the discussion around venereal disease? And then, mm-hmm. and then what is reflected in the, um, the literature that you're accessing? It was definitely taboo. Um, but I will say, even though we kind of have this idea that the Victorians were prudish, they really weren't. Um, I mean, we see that reflected in the venereal disease rates that, we, you know, before the First World War. Um, it was prevalent in society. And, you know, we might see variation according to class. Uh, certain classes definitely had higher VD rates, which suggests that these were uh, individuals who either had pre or extramarital affairs. But yet it was still something that was uh, taboo, um, 
you know, there were social mores which suggested that, um, you know, you should only marry uh, and, and have sex, you know, when you're married. Even, I guess, in terms of sex education, it was still very kind of hush-hush. It wasn't something that was openly discussed. And there a few weeks ago, I was actually looking through some um, 1914 newspapers through the British um, newspaper archive. And that was one thing that a lot of the women's groups at the time were advocating for, was for, for better sex education so that specifically women had um, a better knowledge base for this sort of thing. Because I, I think um, the impression that I'm getting, and you know, this could be a different conclusion in a few months' time, is that men had a, a bit of a better understanding of this sort of thing than women. This wasn't something that was considered a woman's problem, yet it was men who were often the ones going out and accessing these, these brothels, these prostitutes, and then bringing that home to their wives and spreading it that way. And then, of course, because uh, VD, you know, could be passed down to your children, uh, there were concerns for the, for the British race. So we kind of see it more so the discussion was in terms of the future of the race in, in along that line, that kind of more eugenic discourse that we see happening around this time. But I guess in terms of where this information shows up in the archive, you really got to dig for it. Yeah. <laughs> that seems, you know, like um, I'm looking at, uh, or I was listening to some oral histories. Um, that was one of the first um, sources that I, that I really accessed because some of that I can access, you know, from home. I found that uh, although in the description of the oral history, there are mentions of brothels or prostitutes or, or women, oftentimes you need to kind of look at things more closely. What did these men think about the locals? What did these men say about their experiences, you know, in Cairo, in Alexandria, in Salonika, wherever, um, to kind of really, you know, see what was included in the description. So part of that is more along the lines of how it was, you know, organized in the archive, but also just using oral histories as an example, um, you definitely see men and of course these were done, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, some in the early 90s, where they didn't really want to talk about it, or sure, yeah. if they, of course, <laughs> yeah. or if they did, it was always a friend of a friend, or sure. they heard about <laughs> this happening, you know, or yes, I went down to the bazaar, but I was too scared to go into a brothel, or I, I heard a lecture on VD, and I was too scared to go to the red light district, that sort of thing. So, you know, especially with oral histories, you really have to be cautious, but they are really great source. Personal diaries, personal papers, they're in there as well. Again, you can't really take the description of what's in the file for face value because these things are in there and they're often just not documented on the description. I haven't had an opportunity to look at a lot of those yet. That would have been what I was going to London for in part. Like I said, British newspapers, pension files. I, I saw some pension files when I was last in London from the, um, uh, the National Archives, uh, or sorry, not pension files, um, Ministry of Pension Files, uh, where they were having a debate with the Treasury about how do we like, compensate men or how do we manage this, this uh, VD as a war wound, basically, and, mm -hmm. and how does money become involved? Because, of course, this would have been considered a self-inflicted wound. Yet, you know, it 
could have still caused um, problems because of uh, secondary illnesses or side effects, what have you. Yeah, so diaries, military uh, and government documents, oral histories. Um, I need to look at some YMCA documents the next time mm-hmm. I'm in London. Even, I guess, discourse on what women's groups and suffrage groups were saying, not just about VD, but even the uh, white, what was termed the uh, white uh, sex trade. <laughs> and um, uh, medical journals at the time and what they were saying about different treatments um, of of VD, um, specifically even how they went about treating it in the war. Soldier newspapers and magazines will be another great source. Um, So there's are definitely a lot of uh, archival materials I can tap into. Uh, yeah, but just, you have to be a bit of a detective and, and yeah. pull it all together. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm not sh- really sure what other people experience when they're in the same boat, but um, I definitely have to do some digging and you need to go through a lot to maybe find a little bit that you can use. Right. Yeah. So one of the most interesting oral histories that I've come across so far was um, from an ex um, RAMC officer who uh, told a story about when he was at a uh, reunion for a serviceman who had served in Salonika. He said that at that reunion, he was told about how a famous psychologist from uh, London had come down to Salonika to help uh, diagnose servicemen who were experiencing a, an undiagnosable illness that nobody could figure out. Um, and when that uh, psychologist arrived, he determined that men were lacking sex. So the, uh, they decided to you know, send away for like 60, 70 prostitutes from London and bring them to Salonika. Um, now, I don't have any like written documentation. I haven't been able to find anything yet to kind of corroborate that story. But I certainly find it an interesting one, and I'm hoping I might find something down the line to suggest whether that's true or not. You, you've talked a little bit about the, um, you know, various treatments and whatnot. Did the medical establishment really understand? So, like, what was their what was their knowledge of, you know, sexually transmitted diseases at a medical level? Did they really did they really know much about virology at that point? Like, what was the state of medical knowledge? Yeah, so in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century, venere- venereological knowledge was limited in, in, in some ways, for sure. It was very gendered. So, of course, doctors were predominantly men. And in order to, the specialty wasn't really that much of a thing at that point in time. So oftentimes, venereal disease kind of fell under dermatology um, because of how it presented itself, of course, right? Like we start, we see lesions and pox, you know, on the skin. Um, that sort of thing. But in terms of uh, a true understanding, really in the early uh, 20th century or late 19th century, uh, we see an advancement in medical science that allows us to discover the, you know, gonococcus, which caused uh, gonorrhea. We see uh, the uh, treponema pallidum, which causes syphilis is being discovered. And that was followed by what was uh, the Wasserman test. So it was a serological test to determine uh, whether you had uh, uh, syphilis. That again followed with the introduction of Salverson, which led to Neo Salverson there a few, few years later. And we don't, of course, see antibiotics, which we know was actually the tried and true treatment happening until. Uh, the 1940s. Um, Of course, it was discovered previously, but they didn't have it mass produced uh, until the 1940s. 
There was definitely knowledge, but it was as, I guess, good as <laughs> what as we a, see happening. As, as advanced, yeah. <laughs> as advanced, for sure, until uh, a little bit later. But, um, you know, they knew what caused it. They knew what the uh, uh, symptoms were. They knew uh, they had, you know, some forms of treatments for it, uh, which at the time they did think was a, a magic bullet, but it really wasn't. But really that, that missing piece was how they approached sex education and safe sex and prophylaxis and and all that sort of thing you know they kind of took that moralistic approach and you know condoms weren't something that everybody used it was very taboo so it contributed obviously to the problem (laughs) right so tell me a little bit about the the men who were engaged in the in this particular region like where Mm -hmm. were they coming from you're looking at anzac soldiers and and what else you're looking at the, the British soldiers, um, you know, we see uh, Brits, uh, we see um, Indian soldiers as well in this region. We see Australians, uh, New Zealanders. Um, it was mostly British in um, Macedonia, which is present day Greece. <laughs> there was a lot of, um, like I said, Indian soldiers specifically in, in Mesopotamia, which is modern day Iraq. Each region uh, specifically had its own purpose in the sense of why these troops were there. Um, So I guess to kind of start off with Egypt and Palestine, Egypt was under British rule, uh, had been since the 1880s. um, And the Suez Canal was especially really important for the empire because it was a gateway to what was called the East, um, especially India. So it was really important from um, imperial economic perspective. Uh, Anzac troops were I think the first to arrive um, in in Egypt, followed by the British, um, and they were there to guard the Suez Canal. And of course, the Ottomans knew that they were there. So they were kind of coming through Mesopotamia and Palestine and the Sinai Desert and uh, were trying to put off an attack there or there was, um, you know, some some conflict going on there. Troops eventually pushed the Ottomans back. They went in through the Sinai Desert and we see them into Palestine. And uh, Jerusalem was especially known for uh, uh, prostitution of ED. They they definitely accessed uh, women uh, in that region. Uh, Mesopotamia, um, historians have called uh, the Mesopotamian campaign uh, like a mission creep. So essentially there was a a purpose um, to it initially, which was uh, oil driven. But of course they long-term they saw what it it meant, you know, imperially, militarily, politically. Um, and of course, we see um, the impact of that uh, occurring still today. The region is, is there's a lot of conflict there today. And a lot of that can be attributed to um, the fact that the British came in during the First World War. The Macedonia, um, so the forces there were a multinational force. So we see the French, we see the British, we see Italians, Russians, and eventually the Greeks when the Greeks entered the war. Um, so really the purpose of invading Macedonia, because it was um, uh, neutral initially, was to help Serbia. So really the idea was to come in through that side of the Balkans and, and kind of come around that way through um, Eastern Europe. Um, and they were there from 1915 onwards. 
you're talking about how, you know, we see some of the echoes of that First World War conflict today, mm-hmm. you know, that the region is still impacted by some of the things that were happening in, in that era. Mm-hmm. Today, we're living in this really strange time of our mm-hmm. existence, you know, where mm-hmm. the issues around disease and protection and public safety and efficiency are, mm-hmm. you know, headline news. I, I'm just curious, you know, when you're, when you're looking at this stuff that happened 100 years ago, and then living in the midst of a pandemic, mm-hmm. does that make your medical history brain happy or or is it confusing or what? Well, gosh, I wouldn't say happy. (laughs) But um, I definitely, you know, especially when it comes to a lot of the complacency, a lot of, if I can say some of the ignorance, Mm -hmm. whether it's intentional or intentional, sorry, or not. But I think the biggest thing is really the um, prejudice that we kind of see happening and the, the stigma associated with contracting something that's feared, a disease that's feared. So, you know, we see a lot of racism result from, you know, the coronavirus because of its association with Wuhan, China. And, you know, in terms of VD, there was a lot of uh, stigma associated with contracting VD because it was considered, you know, morally inappropriate. You were having pre or extramarital sex and that wasn't the way to do it back in, you know, the early 20th century when, you know, we still see those Victor- uh, residual Victorian values. Um, so there are definitely some some parallels I see mm-hmm. happening. Um, and even in terms of the race for a vaccine, um, in uh, after the First World War, when the League of Nations was established, there were um, uh, like committees set up, organizations set up for, um, you know, different nations to come together and try and figure out what can we do about this venereal disease problem? Because everything back then was uh, this big problem question that they had to solve. And in a ways it kind of resulted in a bit of a competition. Um, but of course, this ended up getting squashed because the Second World War happened. But yeah, there was a bit of competitiveness. Um, and, you know, there are times when, you know, when you hear of, you know, Britain's doing this America's doing this. That's kind of where my mind goes sometimes. There's a little bit of a who's going to get this vaccine first. Yeah, there are definitely some some similarities I see sometimes that uh, I always kind of relate to to what I'm doing. But the biggest yeah. one for sure is the stigma associated. Yeah, that kind of othering of a disease. You know, and, and I know that syphilis Absolutely. has that syphilis has that history of being, you know, mm-hmm. like the French pox or, or, you know. Yes, the French pox, the uh, Russian pox, the British pox, like whatever. It, if you got it from somebody from a different nation, it was that pox. Yeah. So absolutely, you're 100% correct in terms of this othering factor that we see yeah. uh, happening with, with venereal disease, for sure. Yeah, and then we come right out of that, we come right out of the First World War into like the Spanish flu, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's interesting, you know, I've, I've noticed lately in discussions of the, the 1919 flu, I've, I'm seeing more people referring to it as the 1919 flu instead of the Spanish influenza, you know, yeah, uh, because yeah. I think there is this sense, okay, well, it's not really accurate or fair to say that this was a, a Spanish disease any more mm-hmm. than it would be to say that syphilis is French or that, right. you know, uh, coronavirus is the China virus or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right. yeah, for sure. So are there lessons then that can we can look back and learn when we're, when we're looking at things like public education today? Um, I think the biggest takeaway is being open and and talking about it. Um, I mean, that's, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, when I was looking at some British uh, newspapers there from 1914, a few weeks ago, um, you know, women were advocating for better knowledge so that they could teach 
their daughters, <laughs> right? So really the, the biggest thing is, is the knowledge piece, having and being open about what these diseases are, their impacts, because of course, syphilis especially, was fatal. And um, it's quite an ugly disease. You know, it's, it's quite simple to be protected, but in some ways there's still a stigma attached to to that or that kind of awkwardness of talking about condoms or, you know, other forms of protection. So yeah, education, that knowledge is certainly important for sure. You've mentioned a couple times how you're looking at this this work that was being done by women a hundred years ago, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a woman doing research. And, and I mm-hmm. suspect that a lot of the records are very empty <laughs> when it comes to like telling women's stories. Like how do you, how do you approach that when you know that half the story is, is female in the past, but the majority of the documents are written from a male perspective? Oh yeah, that's a really great question. So of course, because I'm doing mostly focusing on the men and their experiences, but also it would be, you know, very wrong to completely omit how these women experienced these encounters because they, they were counter encounters, uh, again, to steal a little phrase from, uh, from a historian, they weren't one sided, you know, these women experienced it too. So it's really important to, to include their voice. The downfall for me is that, you know, being women who were in the sex trade, they likely didn't have much of an education to be able to put their pen to paper. Um, But there are some works that uh, historians have done on this topic. So I can definitely tap into their work and what they've been able to find. Um, because of course for me I have that language barrier you know I don't speak the languages of uh, these regions that I'm I'm looking for uh, the women that I'm looking into but one thing that I'm hoping to find um, in the archive is how this impacted the personal lives of servicemen after the war so how did it how did it impact their if they were married especially how did it impact their marriage Um, were there divorces also, in terms of, you know, the women on these so-called peripheral fronts of um, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Macedonia, surely some of these women got pregnant. So I'm kind of wondering if there's something in the archive that could suggest, you know, women were applying for um, support from the Ministry of Pensions to support the child that they had with this, you know, one night stand with a, a serviceman from, from Britain or Australia or whatever, wherever. Um, or perhaps there's something in, in some newspapers, some English newspapers uh, from, from Egypt. That would be really best case scenario in terms of finding that sort of material from the archive. That would be some kind of ways around that, that kind of problem of they might not have the records. And then if they do, the language component isn't there for me. So I'm hoping to still be able to include their voice because that's very important. Well, this has been fascinating, and I and I know that you've been kind of mm-hmm. held back from doing your field research because of COVID. Yeah. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. that you get a green light at some point, and you can go off and spend as much time in the archives as your heart desires. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I hope so too. I'm. I will say I'm in a, a lucky situation where there are some materials online that I can access. So I'm incredibly grateful to the institutions who have made their uh, archives available for free um, during this time or even before this pandemic even happened. So free digitization access to these arch- uh, these archives and documents is fantastic. We agree, we agree on that. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's something that I'm always 
pushing is access to access mm -hmm. to historical records. You know, it becomes Absolutely. such a it's such a valuable resource. And and yeah, you're right. The archives are getting better and better all the time. There's more and more stuff yeah. online, which is fantastic for people who love to poke around. Yeah, if people want funding to, is important. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, now, if uh, if people want to follow you and your research, uh, are you are you sharing any of this on social media, or, or is there a way people can contact you? Um, yeah, they can definitely contact me. I'm on Twitter at Allison Lynn NL. Allison with two L's. I am hoping to share some more of my work in the coming months um, because my I haven't done a whole lot of research. I've been pretty quiet on it, you know, since I've started my program. But the more I gather, the more I'll be willing to share because it is a really great topic. I, I really love my topic. Uh, it's, it's super interesting and I think people would be uh, interested to hear about it. So We'll have to do a follow-up when you come back from, uh, from doing your archival yes. research. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. All right. Thanks for this. Thank you. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.